everyone, and welcome back to the Stroke Special Interest Group Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Diaz. I'm excited to be back with you. I know it's taken us a while to finally get this second episode out, but hopefully it'll be worth the wait. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about knowledge translation. It's a topic that I believe is a good follow-up to our first episode, which I haven't heard. I highly recommend you check it out, because in our first episode, we talked about poor outcome measures, clinical practice guidelines that were recently published. A lot of work goes in developing these clinical practice guidelines, but just because they're developed and published doesn't mean that therapists are automatically going to start using them. And that's where knowledge translation comes in. And admittedly, I don't know too much about knowledge translation, but that's why I'm very happy to be joined by experts who have been involved in knowledge translation projects. On today's episode, I'm joined by Nora Fritz, Suzanne Trojanowski, and Amy York, will help shed some light on what knowledge translation is and talk to us about a knowledge translation project they've been working on. Dr. Nora Fritz is an assistant professor in the physical therapy program and department of neurology at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. She's also a director of the neuroimaging and neurorehabilitation laboratory at Wayne State. Suzanne Trojanowski is an assistant clinical professor at the University of Michigan Flint in Flint, Michigan, and is a board certified neurologic clinical specialist. Amy York is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Michigan Flint and is also a board-certified neurologic clinical specialist. So here they are talking to us about knowledge translation. Enjoy. Amy, Nora, and Suzanne, welcome to the Stroke SIG podcast. Thank you so much for joining me to discuss the topic of knowledge translation. You're welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's just jump right in and let's start with the basics. What is knowledge translation and why is it important to our profession? So knowledge translation is this umbrella term that's used for all of the activities that are involved in moving research from the laboratory or the academic journal to the clinic for practical use. And it's really important to realize that knowledge translation is actually a cycle that starts with identifying a problem or determining some sort of practice gap. And then the next steps are to look for available literature and knowledge that would solve that problem, adapt that knowledge to your own local context, look at barriers and facilitators to knowledge use in your specific setting, and then select and tailor interventions that you can implement in your own setting. After that, there's a monitoring period, and finally, outcomes are evaluated, and a sustainability plan is implemented to sustain knowledge use. And this idea of knowledge translation is really important to our profession as PTs, because we have really great research and evidence-based practice, but very little of it is actually adopted by clinics or across health systems. So knowledge translation provides this really nice framework for translating this evidence into practice and from our standpoint, a really nice gateway for clinicians and academicians to partner with the ultimate goal of improving outcomes for our clients. Okay, so I understand that the the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy now has several task force that are working on knowledge translation right now. as they relate to clinical practice guidelines. Can you tell us about some of these? Yeah, so for every clinical practice guideline that the ANPT is working to develop, they felt like knowledge translation would be a key component of developing these clinical practice guidelines. So 
They created knowledge translation task forces for each of the CPGs. And these task forces are gonna work to create the tools and strategies for clinicians and clinics to use to disseminate and implement these clinical practice guidelines that they are developing. And currently there are two knowledge translation task forces that are at work. So the vestibular hypofunction and the core outcome measures and with more to come as the other clinical practice guidelines finish up their work. Now I understand that you all have been involved in a knowledge translation project. Um, can you talk specifically about that project and can you tell us about your project, how it was started, and um, what were the reasons for wanting to do this project? So the three of us um, attended the Knowledge Translation Summit at Combined Sections in 2017. And when we um, attended that summit, we had intended to work on a project on locomotor training that would occur in an urban inpatient rehab setting, which was where Suzanne had worked. So we attended the summit, really kind of gained some really um, strong knowledge and skills in the knowledge, um, trans, our knowledge, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the um, knowledge translation process, but um, Suzanne actually left that employer in August, so we started looking for opportunities to work on another project. Um, I actually had a relationship with a local clinician who is an expert in Parkinson's disease, and she worked for an organization who had interest in partnering with our university. And so both the clinician and the manager wanted to improve care provided to their patients, and I think that's an important aspect of knowledge translation is that understanding like what are the barriers of facilitators this was definitely a facilitator management was completely on board with that so after some discussions with the physical therapist and our manager we collectively determined that we would work on a project that we ended up calling i know pd which stands for integrating knowledge translation tools for outcome measurement in parkinson's disease and what we really set out the first kind of answer is our patients with Parkinson's disease who are admitted to these outpatient rehab clinics. There was a set of four outpatient clinics, um, hospital-based clinics. Are these patients assessed with a standard assessment battery in order to capture the common impairments, activity limitations, and participation restrictions we see in people with PD? So I appreciate the chance on the stroke SIG podcast that we're talking a little bit about Parkinson's disease, but I really think anytime I say Parkinson's disease, you could implement the word stroke. So just like Nora talked about, we used the knowledge to action process that was described by Graham as kind of our guide and our way to kind of um, kind of be a roadmap to our process. And this includes seven parts. I'm going to be repeating a little bit what Nora said, but kind of really think about this project about do we use the same outcome measures in people with Parkinson's disease? So the first process is including identifying the problem that standardized outcomes are not used regularly. So as a physical therapist, I kindly have a lot of choice and a lot of autonomy to decide what outcome measures I'm going to use. And so while that gives me a lot of autonomy, it doesn't provide consistency across practice to see are patients getting better if we're looking at the same tool. So first identifying the problem and then adapting knowledge to the local context. So we know that there's outcomes for patients with Parkinson's disease based on the EDGE forms and that these should be utilized within certain centers. And then after that, assessing what are the barriers and facilitators to implementing just standardized outcome measures at each of the sites. 
So for example, the six minute walk test was a barrier to be used at one of the sites because they simply didn't have enough distance to be able to, they felt effectively do a six minute walk test that they felt the patient was turning too often. Um, not having equipment to be able to do a test. So not having foam in order to do something like the mini bus test. And so after that then we select and tailored um, interventions kind of based on those barriers of facilitators. So we were fortunate, we got a small grant um, from the Institute of Research from the Michigan Physical Therapy Association. We were able to buy equipment for the therapist and we were able to provide training for the therapist. Um, then comes monitoring knowledge use. So are the therapists doing what they're supposed to be doing? Um, evaluation of outcomes and then sustaining use. So kind of through this process, we again collectively decided to utilize four measures in patients with Parkinson's disease. Um, and so, like when you look at the edge form, there's lots of measures that are recommended, but we, the therapists weren't interested in doing eight or 10 measures. So the four measures that were determined to be the measures that for this project they would do was the nine hole peg test, five times sit to stand, tandemeter walk test, and mini best test. And the therapist felt like this was the right battery of tests to do with every patient who was admitted to outpatient physical therapy, or at one of the settings, actually occupational therapists, the occupational therapist did the nine hole peg test. So all the staff across four clinics received training and we got them equipment to ensure that they could execute these tasks. Um, another common barrier that you'll see written in the literature was true to this was um, the electronic medical record that if there's not the right spot to put it, that's a barrier for a therapist doing it. So we made adjustments made in the EMR in order to ensure that the therapist could document as well as that we could start to track the information. Okay, so I, I would imagine trying to implement this in a clinic, you would run into some barriers and you mentioned some barriers about the six minute walk test. Um, were there any other barriers that you ran into? And if so, how did you keep the project moving forward? So really the biggest barrier that we ran into was establishing a data use agreement with the clinic. And so this data use agreement between the clinic, which is part of a large health organization, and then our two universities would allow the three of us to look at the data in the charts and then be able to provide that mentoring and feedback to the therapist in terms of their adherence to this battery of tests. And so not really realizing how long of a legal process that this can take. This really <laughs> took a long time. Yeah. It's still taking a long time. But because the clinicians themselves were so committed to the project, we decided just to move forward and continue to provide that mentoring piece, even though we were missing that objective data and the feedback to them. So that was probably the biggest barrier. Okay. Um, so what was your timeline for the project and how did you decide upon this timeline? So we had anticipated the project um, lasting about 12 months. And so when you think about this knowledge to action cycle, I think therapists that have worked in the clinic for a long time might even compare it to a kind of a quality improvement, right? And it takes a long time to implement. And like we're coming from the outside and partnering. So we had to make sure that we we had each other's trust and respect. And so we knew we also wanted at least six months of monitoring because that would fit in with the volume of patients that they saw across these four clinics. And I think, you know, the project 
seems quite simple, right? Like you're just trying to get therapists to implement for outcome measures. And you think, well, you should be able to get that done quicker, but time I think always goes by faster than what we expected. And so we are actually approximately 13 months into the project um, right now. And I really, I think that we have to thank the clinical staff in order what has kept this project moving. And so the staff that we work with is highly motivated and dedicated to really evidence-based practice. And there was a clearly identified content expert in Parkinson's disease who served as our knowledge broker. So a knowledge translation, a knowledge broker is a person who serves as the in-clinic expert who kind of lays on between the clinic and the research team. And we, I just want to call her name out. Her name is Angie Ludwa. And she was someone who could answer questions about the assessment battery. Um, very quickly um, for the other clinicians if they had a thought about it. She was also very good in having um, conversations with us about what potential barriers there were that maybe in a larger group people wouldn't necessarily say. So I think that has really, even though it's taken a long time, that having that person in the clinic there has really made a difference in um, really keeping everything moving forward. Sure. Now you said you were 13 months into the project. Can you update us? Where are you in the process right now? So we've just so, completed. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go we ahead, just completed Nora. the um, six month monitoring period that uh, Amy was referencing earlier. And we actually had our post monitoring period focus group with the clinicians who were all involved in the project about two weeks ago. Um, so at this point, we're actually in the sustaining phase of the knowledge translation cycle, where the clinicians will continue to utilize the um, behaviors that we've been talking about in the outcome tools. And so at this point, we are now analyzing data. Okay, great. So with this whole process, were there any things that surprised you? Yeah, so I would say a really good surprise was how excited the therapists in the clinic were to work with us and partner with us and engage with us in this project, in this whole process. And so they were really committed to adhering to the assessment battery and performing it with their patients. But, but that really came from their focus on helping their patients with Parkinson's improve and improve their quality of life. So that was really a great surprise for us and really helped make the project exciting. I would say a bad surprise, like we mentioned earlier, was the drawn out process of getting the data use agreement pulled together and finalized. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, are you, are you happy with the results and how do you think this project or the results move our profession forward? So yes, we are happy with the results so far. As I mentioned earlier, we just held this focus group with the clinicians who participated and they were really pleased with this project and their participation in the project, and they felt that working together uh, with us had improved their use of these standardized outcome tools for their patients with Parkinson's disease. So that's really exciting to hear their positive feedback about the working relationship. Um, so we don't have any of the formal results just yet, so we are in the process of transcribing all the audio from that focus group, and we'll be pulling um, some quantitative data from the electronic medical record for analysis. So all of those results will be forthcoming. Um, but so far, we're just really pleased with how our interactions were with this clinic, and we're really looking forward to future projects with them.
as far as moving the profession forward, I think that this project kind of provides, at least for me, proof of concept that this kind of working partnership between clinicians and researchers um, is possible, is, is exciting, it's motivating, and it's really, for me, the basis for future knowledge translation projects. Um, I'm wondering if Amy and Suzanne have other thoughts about that, though. I agree. I just think as um, the three of us are engaged in education, and it's frustrating when we teach our students to utilize these outcome measures, and then they go into the clinic and they never see them implemented. And so I think this idea of gap, of closing that gap of how long it takes research to get to the clinic, I think is really necessary to move the profession forward. And I, I don't think we could have asked for a better group to work with the first time around, because I do think that success breeds more success and more confidence in ourselves and in that group of particular therapists. So I do think that this has set a foundation for us um, as a group to kind of continue to move forward with other projects and other organizations or other knowledge translation projects. Sorry, Suzanne, I interrupted you. No, that, that's fine. I was just going to say, you know, because originally our group formed because I was a clinician that had wanted to create this kind of partnership. And when you start working on this, you worry as a clinician that, you know, you're, you're the only one interested in this kind of thing. So it was really exciting and invigorating for me to meet other clinicians that felt the same way I did as a clinician, that to create these partnerships with academic folks and researchers to help move our whole profession forward and really just to make care better for our patients that that's how I see the profession moving forward. So do you have any next steps for the clinic that you're in? Uh, so yes, we do. Um, the clinicians actually already have a whole host of ideas for our next um, partnership together, our next knowledge translation project. Uh, we haven't chosen one pathway yet, but some of the things that they're interested in exploring are um, implementing specific interventions for persons with Parkinson's disease, exploring the transition from outpatient care to community exercise for PD and how we can better engage uh, patients with PD, particularly underserved or lower level patients in community exercise. So we'll continue to provide these clinicians with updates on their use of the outcome tools as part of our sustainability plan, but we'll also be working with them to develop new collaborations and new projects. All right, great. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds like a really interesting project. Um, and before we close, I'd just like to give you, Amy, Nora, and Suzanne, uh, a last chance. Do you have any final comments that you'd like to make? I think that I cannot emphasize enough to listeners of this podcast, but whether you're coming from an academic side or a clinical side, of really looking to find people to collaborate with, because we're both out there. There's clinicians out there that want to collaborate, and there's researchers and academicians that want to collaborate. So find ways to network, like whether you use your clinical education um, faculty to assist you with that. I think sometimes using your students is a great way to find um, partnerships. And start small. We all want to change the world, but we recognize it doesn't happen in, in, in a day. So start small and find a project that you believe 
really has a high chance of being successful. Try to make it as simple as possible because it's always going to be harder than what you think. Okay, well, Amy, Nora, and Suzanne, you've given us a lot of great information and thank you for talking to us about your project. I certainly have a, a better understanding now of what knowledge translation is and hopefully our listeners do as well. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. episode of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast. I hope you find it useful and learned a little bit about knowledge translation. Honestly, knowledge translation is an area that I did not even know existed until recently. I'm grateful to Nora, Suzanne, and Amy for joining me to talk about it. But be on the lookout for our next episode. We have several episodes in the works, so hopefully we won't keep you waiting too long. Also, I'm very excited to be joined by a new co-host, Corey Hall, who's going to be helping me put together some episodes for this podcast. So stay tuned for some episodes by Corey, as well as some by myself. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Diaz. Take care.